This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Like it or not, legal marijuana is thoroughly a part of Colorado. In 2017, the state collected more than $226 million in taxes and fees off the drug, which is why it's big news here today that the Justice Department is changing course under Attorney General Jeff Sessions. He will rescind an Obama-era policy that allowed marijuana to flourish. It's one of the topics we'll tackle with the two most powerful leaders at the state capitol. That is Democratic Speaker of the House, Chrysanta Duran, and Republican Senate President Kevin Grantham. We are also going to talk about how they'll root out and prevent sexual assault and harassment at the state house. And the two join us from the capitol. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello. So NPR confirms that the attorney general will now leave it up to U.S. attorneys around the country as to how aggressively they enforce federal drug laws in states that have legalized recreational marijuana like Colorado. Uh, Speaker Duran, may I get your reaction first uh, and ask if this changes anything for the session that begins next week? I think the federal government needs to respect the will of Colorado voters. And we are going to do everything we can to push back on this. This is a slap in the face um, to the people who decided that they wanted to have um, marijuana legal in the state of Colorado. And um, we will continue to advocate for them. You say you'll push back as much as you can. Do you know what form that might take? Well, I think at this point we are looking at our options um, and we need to make sure that we are respecting the will of voters. And Senator Grantham, what do you say to this? Well, I would have to agree. We will uh, obviously we're still digesting everything that came out this morning. And so we're going to take a look at that. But uh, the bottom line is the people of Colorado have spoken and we are here to perform and do the will of the of the people of Colorado, and they have put this in the Constitution, and we have sworn an oath to that Constitution, and I think uh, we will side with them. Um, even, you know, speaking for myself personally, I didn't vote for Amendment 20 or Amendment 64, but the reality is I swore an oath to the Constitution, and we need to respect that first and foremost and the people of Colorado. As I said in the introduction, the state collected more than $226 million in marijuana taxes and fees last year. I know that that's paid for everything from addiction treatment to school construction. Can you both give us a sense of what marijuana tax dollars pay for and what it could mean for the state if the market takes a hit, the recreational market especially? Uh, Speaker Duran? Sure. Um, well, the money has been put to good use, and we've really used to use the dollars to regulate the drug um, with the effort and always keeping in mind that we want to keep it out of the hands of kids and criminals um, as it relates to the dollars that have been um, invested in different ways. You know, one of those, those ways that we've invested is in school construction. And um, I think that it, we need to continue um, to be able to have that revenue available and that we also continue to uh, support school-based health programs um, and so forth. Um, I also think that when it comes to the issue of addiction, um, we need to ensure that there's investment going um, towards um, making sure that people get the help that they they need. Um, and so it is it is very unfortunate. I think we, with this decision that came down today, um, we are looking at our options, but we're going to fight for Coloradans. Senator Grantham, uh, it's possible someone listening thinks, well, the 
The state is addicted to marijuana in some respects, or at least the money that it provides. So, of course, you'd be saying this is a slap in the face. How would you react? Well, you know, this is the system that was put into place through Amendment 64, uh, Props AA and Props B and Prop BB. Uh, the voters themselves put this in place, and it's our job to to uh, do the will of the voters and uh, regulate this as best we can. Uh, it's not a matter of being drunk on that money. It's a matter of taking the money that the Colorado voters have given to us and use it to the um, extent that they authorize us to. And I believe that's what we're trying to do, and we will continue that effort and try to allocate that money appropriately, whether it's to treatment or to law enforcement, um, whether it's the set amount that goes into school construction, all of these things, we have to weigh the benefits to local communities throughout the state and how we do that. And law enforcement is one of the big ones, you know, uh, trying to make sure that we um, attach enough money there so that we can uh, uh, get at the gray markets and black markets here in, in Colorado that affect every community, whether it's large or small. And so we have a big struggle ahead of us uh, on a yearly basis on on how we tackle this. So You're hearing the sirens in the background that are circulating around the state capitol at this moment. This is Colorado <laughs> Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with legislative leaders who join us from the state capitol ahead of next week's start of the legislative session. So arguably, one of the biggest stories worldwide has been Me Too, people sharing their experiences with sexual harassment and assault. And this is true of Colorado's capital, where four formal complaints have been filed against lawmakers. And I want to note that Colorado's legislature has one of the highest percentage of women serving in the country. And though Me Too has not been you know, purely about women sharing their experiences, it has largely been that. So it's against that backdrop. I ask you, what Me Too has taught you about the Capitol as a workplace? Mm-hmm. Uh, Speaker Duran. Well, thank you for the question. And I think that we need to address the issue of harassment head on. And that is why on December 15th, The executive committee met, um, which is comprised of both Republicans and Democrats in leadership. And we took some meaningful steps to address this issue. Um, One uh, step that we're taking is, is we're working to hire an HR person um, to be available to people if they have issues that they have experienced. Um, We're also working on hiring an outside expert. Um, to give us advice about how we should change our policy and work to reform the culture at the Capitol. Um, The outside expert will also be taking advice and feedback from the public, all interested parties, um, to make some recommendations to us. And the third thing that we're doing is is we want to ensure there are more trainings available um, to everybody who works in the building so they understand um, how to file a complaint if, if they choose to and how to address issues that come up in the workplace. Um, but I think what we're seeing right now across the country is there's a cultural shift that is taking place. And women in a variety of different workplaces, from Colorado to states um, throughout the United States, we need to make sure that women are being evaluated, 
based on their merit, their skill, and their hard work. And we also need to recognize that there have been actions and rhetoric that have become normalized against women that are unacceptable and inappropriate. Um, And the only way that we are going to make sure that we have an inclusive Colorado and an inclusive country when it comes to the issues that impact women in the workplace is if we are aware of them and that we are willing to take them on. What, that what is exactly this, what we're doing at the legislature. What has this taught you about the Capitol as a workplace, Senator Grantham? Well, that we are not immune to such things uh, when it comes to sexual harassment, to, when it comes to accusations, um, uh, when it comes to uh, the difficulty in coming out and, and reporting such things. I think that's probably one of the more eye-opening things about all this is um, – you know, for myself, and I think, uh, not to speak for the speaker on this, but to to come to the realization that uh, uh, it's not as easy for some to, to come to us, even though I think we would both accept such uh, complaints readily and investigate them thoroughly under the current system. Uh, the reality is uh, people weren't comfortable coming forward. And, and so we have to reexamine how we do that. And what kind of things can we put in place that actually makes it conducive for people to um, report when things happen? Because uh, we don't want that stuff going on around here. So what can we do to help fix it? And I suppose that speaks to the changes that the speaker just mentioned. They're having some sort of an outside voice or monitor that you can turn to that is not leadership. I think there's a question of how independent that person will be. Uh, so four lawmakers, Representatives Steve Lebsock and Paul Rosenthal and Senators Randy Baumgartner and Jack Tate, have been formally accused of improper behavior, and their accusers include interns, lobbyists, fellow legislators. These men all deny the allegations. Uh, Speaker Duran, the Denver Post reports this morning that the formal complaint against Rosenthal was dismissed, mm-hmm. indicating that you decided the General Assembly's sexual harassment policy didn't apply to that situation. So he's accused of groping a man and making unwanted sexual advances uh, before he was elected to the House. Uh, briefly, how did you come to that mm-hmm. conclusion? Well, let's um, talk about the process a bit. Um you know, number one, I'm really not allowed to talk about um, complaints that have been dismissed, previous complaints, current complaints. But I do want to talk a little bit about the process. Um, and when there was a complaint that was filed, I decided to bring in an outside expert, a third independent neutral party, to do a preliminary investigation And um, I said at the time that that was what I was planning to do as it relates to complaints that were filed um, with me. And so through that preliminary investigation that the outside expert did, um, there was a determination that it did not fall within the scope of the policy as it relates to that particular instant but this is and why. Is, is that because he wasn't serving in the legislature at the time of the incident? Just briefly. Well, um, I'm not allowed to talk about the specifics, but it was determined from the outside expert that this did not fall within the scope of the policy. But this is exactly why. Also, moving forward, we are saying 
we need systemic change. We need to see if this policy is the best that it can be. And I don't believe that it is the best policy that can be. And I think that's why we need an outside expert to receive feedback, um, to be able to take into consideration um, a variety of different perspectives, to give us recommendations on how we move forward to ensure that we have the best policy we can and that we also work to change the culture at the Capitol. I wonder how it will be, Senator, to uh, have the session underway next week and to be working so directly with members of the legislature and uh, in your own chamber who are under uh, active investigation. Uh, What do you think that's going to mean for the climate of the session? You know, I think um, the climate of the session will be such that we have such big issues that we have to deal with um, that we're going to put our nose to the grindstone and we're going to get to work. We have to deal with things like parrot reform. We have to deal with things like uh, roads um, and infrastructure funding. We have to deal with the budget again, uh, like we do every year. And we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to get to work. Um, The issue that has come before us with sexual harassment and the policy uh, changes potentially, uh, we've already set in motion the events that can help us uh, come to some, some conclusions on that. And we need to let that process also move forward while we're also doing the work of the people, um, doing making policy like they ask us to do. Let's talk about that process as it relates specifically to Representative Steve Lebsock. So um, I want to say that uh, his one of his accusers, at least, is a is a fellow representative, Faith Winter. Um, and I wonder, Speaker Duran, how you envision her, along with other members, interacting with him. Mm-hmm. You, you have called for his resignation multiple times. Well, I think going forward into this upcoming legislative session, um, we have a lot of work to do. And we have many issues to address when we think about uh, making sure there's broadband in all four corners of the state. Or we tackle the high cost of housing and child care. Or we ensure that there's adequate investments into education and um, substance abuse treatment. Um, There's a lot that we have to accomplish this legislative session. Um, It's not going to be easy, but I think we have to be focused on what the people of the state want to see, and that is that we continue um, the work that we started last year and being May may I just get back? I'm so sorry. I I would like to get back specifically to the the question of Representative Lebsock, mm-hmm. uh, and and you're asking him to resign. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Democratic Representative Matt Gray has said he'll introduce legislation to remove Lebsock from office, and that results of the pending investigation may solidify support for that. Um, for his part, Lebsock says uh, not only does he have no intention to resign, he plans to continue his run for state treasurer. And here's what he told CPR News Tuesday. I think all of your listeners would agree that it's inappropriate to call for someone's resignation with no due process before that person's even had the opportunity to tell his side of the story. So may I ask specifically about uh, how you think that will move forward this session? Sure. Um, I think that is a fair question. And I think that we are going to work to make sure that everybody in the Capitol um, feels comfortable. And, you know, I do serve as the Speaker of the House. I cannot fire legislators. 
Um, it is really up to the people who have elected them or will continue to elect them to make a decision about what the outcome should be um, in this particular matter. I did ask Representative Lebsock to resign based on the impacts of his actions on the integrity of our institution, and he has chosen not to. And so now as it relates to the resolution that Representative Gray has talked about bringing forward, I think we need to make sure that the investigation is concluded and that there is a fair process. Um, And also, you know, as it relates to overseeing that particular investigation of Representative Lipsock um, weeks ago that was actually delegated to Majority Leader Becker to oversee. Um, and look, I'm not going to sugarcoat going into this next session that it is it is not going to be difficult. It is going to, there are going to be challenges and unique challenges that we will see this session that I don't think I will have seen in the last seven sessions that I have served as a legislature. Oh. But we have to continue to be focused um, on the work that we have to do. There are a lot of Coloradans who are depending on us to do the right thing and deliver results to the struggles and challenges that they face every single day. And while we are going to take on the issue of harassment head on, we also need to take on the issues of housing and child care. We need to take on the issues of adequate education funding. There is a lot that we must get done, and we, and we, we will work together um, to try and accomplish those goals. Senator Grantham, uh, where do things stand with the complaints against Senators Baumgartner and Tate? Um, I think I'm right to say that you've not removed them from any of their leadership positions Uh, as Speaker Duran did with Representative Lebsack? Well, because we, uh, you know, we're still waiting on any kind of findings coming back from the the third-party evaluator, uh, we're not going to jump the gun on that. So we're allowing the process to take place and uh, to see what the findings are uh, before we do anything like that. And that's where it stands. Uh, Other than that, I can't really uh, mention any details. We're uh, bound to our role in in this process, and we're going to let that process take place. Why do you think the the Senate side has gotten less attention, coverage, perhaps? Well, I I guess there can be a lot of speculation on that, but uh, I'm I'll I'll just leave it at there uh, in the world of speculation. Um, all of these allegations are taken seriously. And we're looking at them all independently, and and we're going to evaluate them on the back end. I want to thank you both for being with us. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. You heard from Senate President Kevin Grantham and Speaker of the House Chrysanta Durand. They joined me from the state capitol. The 2018 legislative session begins on Wednesday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Like most parents who dropped their kids off at college, retired Admiral James Winnefeld says he felt a combination of apprehension and optimism 
But the admiral and his wife had something extra to worry about, their son's struggle with heroin. Jonathan was starting his freshman year at the University of Denver last fall, fresh out of rehab. And then the unthinkable happened. And Admiral, welcome to the program. Uh, Good morning, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Appreciate it. You dropped Jonathan off at DU, and then a few days later, you got a call. What did they tell you? Uh, They told us that they had found Jonathan unresponsive in his dormitory room uh, and that they were unable to revive him and that it was uh, appeared as though he had uh, we had lost him because of a heroin overdose, which was subsequently confirmed uh, by the Denver coroner's office that it was a combination of heroin and fentanyl that uh, that took our son. Fentanyl, this incredibly powerful drug uh, that has really increased in, in popularity recently. Yes, and of course uh, it's being imported from China. Uh, it's being mixed into all kinds of uh, different. Uh, concoctions, whether it's mixed with heroin, and we're starting to see it in some in marijuana and um, uh, counterfeit uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but it really is deadly. It's much more powerful than uh, heroin itself. Uh, and of course, it's not regulated. I can't imagine what it would have been to receive that call. Uh, you know, I've gotten a lot of bad news phone calls in my life, but none of them would even approach uh, the feeling that I had. I was up at Harvard uh, getting ready to uh, give a talk and uh, got this phone call and, of course, immediately rushed back to Washington, D.C. to meet uh, my wife. Uh, but it was a horrible shock. It's not something that anyone can possibly understand or even describe unless you've experienced it yourself. It's just horrible. Jonathan had been in treatment from April to this past July. Um, You didn't know it, but I understand he was already using again when he started at DU. Is that right? Yes. We had Jonathan in treatment, inpatient treatment for 16 months, and uh, he was recovering extremely well. We were watching our son come back to us. He was a pleasure to talk to. He got his emergency medical technician qualification in the latter part of his treatment period. Uh, and so we were very, very optimistic about his ability to reintegrate back into society. We felt going to college uh, uh, was a, a good way to do it. Uh, and one of the things that sort of masked this for us was this uh, every freshman at Denver University is required to write an essay as an incoming freshman. And, and Jonathan's was very powerful. It was about an experience he had on his ambulance ride, one of his ambulance rides, while he was uh, training to be an emergency medical technician and how he found himself in a McDonald's bathroom in New Haven, Connecticut, literally performing CPR on a heroin overdose victim and how this changed his viewpoint, changed his life, made it so he wanted to help other people and continue his recovery. And this literally was written just a few days probably after he relapsed uh, in Denver. Huh. It's a Jekyll and Hyde disease. It's amazing. A Jekyll and Hyde disease. And what does it make you think of of the success um, or even, I don't know, like the regulation and the, the how we measure uh, rehab? Um, how much, you know, confidence we can place in how well it works? Well, you know, rehab is a lifelong uh, project once you become an addict. Uh, we do have some issues in the country about uh, the capability and capacity and affordability of drug rehabilitation. And in particular, uh, there's sort of a lack of uh, care standards across that rehab community. There are uh, – uh, uh, there's a deficiency in the number of 
of rehabilitation facilities that can handle dual morbidity of anxiety and addiction, which have to be treated very carefully together, which was the situation Jonathan was in. So there's some work going on. and There's another companion organization we, we love working with named Shatterproof that is turning most of its attention to treatment. Uh, but we've got a, that's that's probably the the most fruitful and uh, expensive piece that we need to tackle in this country to include with the insurance companies. You founded an organization called Safe Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic, and uh, you wrote a piece about your experience in the Atlantic that's been really widely read. Um, you have a lovely description of your son Jonathan in the article: how industrious he was, how humble, uh, and also how he struggled with depression and anxiety. And so when we talk about drug addiction, uh, we're, we're so often talking about, the medical term for this is comorbidity, but we're so often talking about other issues that people are struggling with that also need the attention. Well, Ryan, you're right. And uh, in our humble view, there are really three pathways into addiction. Uh, the first one is a physical injury that is overprescribed. Hmm. Uh, that's unfortunately very prevalent. We've seen horrible situations where a, a young high school gal will injure an ankle, maybe have a, a companion wisdom tooth removal, what have you, and there's just a, a multiplication of opioids that end up getting them addicted and they end up uh, using heroin and, and they get they uh, obviously have a fatal overdose. That's one path. Another path is what you call the party path where uh, kids are out there grabbing whatever opioids are left over and they're parents' medicine cabinets and take, going, take him to a party and literally putting him to what they call a skittle bowl. Uh, I don't think that's a prevalent path to addiction itself, but it's a, it's a gateway. And then the third one is what happened to Jonathan, and that is this comorbidity of self-medication for some sort of a mental issue. And you hear numbers like 40% of American teenagers having some sort of a, a mental issue. Uh, Jonathan had anxiety that was misdiagnosed as ADD, attention deficit disorder. And he was given Adderall, which is perhaps the worst thing you can give somebody that has anxiety. And we discovered that he was self-medicating with alcohol to bring himself down at night off of the Adderall. And that was what sort of led him into uh, use of weed, uh, into use of uh, Xanax, and ultimately uh, the heroin that claimed his life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News, and I'm speaking with retired Navy Admiral James Winnefeld. His son Jonathan died this fall from a heroin and fentanyl overdose uh, just after he'd started at the University of Denver. Uh, were you able to figure out how he got the drug, um, the fentanyl especially? And I, I just wonder after a death if there's some amount of investigation and um, holding responsible of, of, of someone. Well, there, it's a good question. There, obviously, we were deeply interested in, in what on earth happened to our son. Um, we uh, tried to step him down from his inpatient treatment. We took him up to Breckenridge, Colorado for two weeks and let him just sort of you know, ease into normal life again, brought him back to Denver. And we had set him up uh, because uh, the state of Colorado was interested in him uh, obtaining his EKG qualification if he was going to work as an EMT while he was also going to college. So we set that up at uh, night school uh, at this wonderful facility downtown where Denver trains its paramedics, which is right adjacent to Denver Health, but also happens to be adjacent to an open-air heroin market along the Cherry Creek Trail. We did not know that, and it was a night school. So he would walk back to where he was staying, and apparently he ran across somebody who offered him heroin. 
Now, the, the specialist will tell you that it's almost impossible for a newly recovering uh, addict to turn something like that down. And in fact, we know almost the exact location and date where uh, Jonathan uh, obtained the drug. So we believe he was actually using uh, for uh, 10 days or so before he entered uh, college. Uh, and um, so it was it was freely obtained basically in an open-air heroin market. Hmm. I am struck by how much Jonathan wanted to help. He was both someone who needed help but also wanted to offer it. He really grew into this, Ryan. He, he uh, you know, when we first put him in treatment, he told us it was the worst mistake we would ever make. Sixteen months later, you have a kid who's gotten his EMT qual, has, has openly stated that he wants to help other kids. He wants to become a paramedic fireman. Uh, whatever he can do. He's excited about going to DU. He wants to study criminology because he felt that would be a good pathway into being a paramedic fireman. Uh, and this kid had nowhere to go but up. And that was partly, you know, this wonderful essay he wrote was sort of something that masked uh, from us the fact that he had actually relapsed because we saw him the weekend before we dropped him off at school. We noticed that he was nervous and edgy and sweating a little bit. We thought perhaps that he was nervous about going to college, not unlike uh, someone with anxiety. Perhaps he had too high of a dosage of anti-anxiety medicine. Uh, and what we didn't really recognize were that it was the fact that he was going through withdrawal. I see. And, and this speaks back to the, the Jekyll and Hyde aspect, which is that things can change quickly, but you can also be so unaware of what lurks beneath. What... Where does that leave parents, loved ones, family members who have someone who is struggling with addiction? There's well, all, there, I, a, I suppose you, you really only have so much power. You're right. And one of the things that we try to do on our website, which is safeproject.us, is there's a portion of it that is has to do with family outreach where we want to crowdsource lessons learned on this. Because you know, if we had to do all this over again in 2020 hindsight, there are things we would have done differently that would have saved John's life. And it just hurts to even think about that. But um, you, for one thing, parents simply cannot rely on hope as a strategy. Uh, it's very tempting to say, if, especially if you don't really understand the phenomenon of addiction and recovery, which we didn't until we got further into it. It's really easy to say, okay, this is the last time, right, kid? You know, you, you know you're not going to do this again. This is just bad friends, that sort of thing. But in fact, it's much, much different from that. And you just have to seize control of this. And, and it, it actually starts with an awareness to, while your children are in elementary school of what's really going on in their lives. Uh, all the way through those very important teenage years when there are so many temptations. And then recognizing when, when enough is enough and you've actually got to pull them out. And I would I would say, Ryan, that... Perhaps the most important element of this, particularly if you're fortunate enough to have a loved one in inpatient treatment for a while, is ma making sure that their emergence from that inpatient treatment and transition back into society is very, very carefully managed. Of course, many people have trouble, trouble affording inpatient treatment. Uh, Medicaid often doesn't cover that. Um, and you, you, had, right. you had uh, access to TRICARE as a member of the military, and uh, you too had trouble finding help for your son, I understand. We did. Ryan, two points I would make in that regard. First of all, there are a lot of treatment programs. Uh, insurance companies will only pay for 30 days, what have you. And I tell audiences that, you know what 30 days does for you? 
it lets you, your parents sleep for 30 days because at the end, 30 days simply isn't enough to let the brain even begin to recover from addiction. And if you, if you pop back into society after 30 days, the, the recovery rate is just terrible. Um, and on the TRICARE piece, you know, the military medical system is a very good system, but it just has not been prepared to handle particularly dual morbidity. And, and Jonathan was in a tough position because he was – when this event happened that caused us to take him into inpatient treatment, he was 30 days shy of his 18th birthday, which was immensely complicating in trying to get him into different treatments that you know either take minors or don't take minors, what have you. But the other thing is that uh, the TRICARE system didn't understand the, the dual morbidity of anxiety, depression, and addiction. And they, they just wouldn't pay for a, the right place. And we knew it wasn't going to work, so we went and found our own place and, of course, spent the equivalent of a four-year college education oh, wow. uh, in 16 months trying to, to help him get uh, recovery. And we were very lucky, Ryan, that we were able to afford that. We had to scrape for it, but I'd pay more to have him back. You mentioned in your article safe-use zones in countries like Portugal and Canada where users can inject on-site <clears throat> with healthcare professionals monitoring. Denver is considering this idea. Uh Briefly, how do you think that might have helped your son? Well, Denver is considering this idea. The, the state legislature is, I believe, going to vote on this in a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation, which I think is uh, for an experiment. Uh, you know, it's not ready to commit whole hog to this thing, but it's very worthy of experimentation. And you're absolutely right. Having trained professionals on scene uh, who can administer naloxone or otherwise known as Narcan uh, to save uh, somebody's life who is overdosing and also to be able to offer treatment for those who feel like they're ready to go into treatment. Uh, it's a powerful idea. What we've seen in Portugal is that fatal overdose rates have plummeted. Uh, my understanding is that Seattle is experimenting with this and I see no reason why Colorado shouldn't at least experiment with it to see if it works. But it's a controversial idea. To those who really have not studied the phenomenon of addiction and recovery, uh, it seems anathema to offer free use zones or safe use zones to people, but it's worthy of experimentation. You wrote this piece about your experience with losing your son, again, in the Atlantic. You've done a fair number of interviews about your experience. You founded this organization uh, in the wake of its safe stop the addiction fatality epidemic. I, I guess I'd like to wrap up, Admiral, with just how, how you're doing. Um, in the end, at the end of the day, you you have lost your son. It's a It's a... Uh, terrible background noise of sadness, as any parent can tell you who has lost a son or daughter. There's just You just cannot escape it. And the worst part, of course, no matter how you lose a son or a daughter, uh, whether it's a car accident or a drowning or a, a fatal overdose, you always look back and ask yourself, is there something I could have done differently? But Ryan, we had a choice. We could either curl up in a ball and, and feel sorry for ourselves and wish this away. And I cannot begrudge any parent for feeling that way if they lose their son or daughter to this. But we had uh, an ability to get things done. We had sort of a bully pulpit. And I would not be able to live with myself right now if I were not doing everything in my power to prevent at least one more family from uh, avoiding this terrible tragedy. And if we can influence more families than that, uh, we'll never know. You can't prove a negative. But we are very, very hopeful, and we believe we're already seeing some success in helping other families uh, avoid this terrible tragedy. 
Retired Admiral James Winnefeld's son Jonathan died in September in Denver. He overdosed on heroin laced with fentanyl. Admiral Winnefeld has started an organization again called SAFE, Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. senior living is a little like being back in a college dorm with all the pluses and minuses of communal spaces. Then there's the fact that much of life is dictated by the corporation running the place. Sue Petrovsky is 85. She lives in a senior community in Metro Denver. She doesn't want to say which one. And she reflects on for-profit elder care in her new book, Shelved, a memoir of aging in America. And Sue, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. You and your husband lived in the same house for 47 years in a Denver suburb. That's right. Uh-huh. And your decision to move to a senior independent living apartment came when it was clear that your husband had dementia. Describe the moment you realized that your husband shouldn't drive anymore. Well, he came home with the, the car had a long yellow streak all the way down one side. And I said, what happened? Nothing happened. I said, what did you run into? I didn't hit anything. Well, obviously he had. And this followed times where he had forgotten how to get to the doctor's office and so forth. And uh, I had worked with the Alzheimer's Association as a volunteer, and I realized there comes a time when a person shouldn't drive. And that time had come. And we had to take his keys away and uh, stop his driving. And we knew that there was something wrong mentally, and that was followed by several uh, mental or physical things that happened. So, And you'd cared for a mom with Alzheimer's. I beg so pardon? You, you'd cared for a mother with Alzheimer's. Your mother had Alzheimer's. Yes, she did. Uh-huh. Um, and you then realized that you were facing dementia again in your life, this That's time right. with uh-huh. your husband. And... This leads to the idea of eventually leaving your home for a more suitable setting. You, it, wrote, you wrote about what it was like to move into the senior living community. Will yes. you read that passage for us? Sure. On page 49. We Americans love our stuff. We cherish our stuff. We take very good care of our stuff. And we love to buy new stuff. We love to shop. And who can deny that we are terribly fond of the never-ending swag that surrounds us? As children of the Depression and World War II, in which we saved the tinfoil off of gum wrappers, wound used string into balls, and collected rubber bands with enthusiasm, people in my generation are collectors extraordinaire. We are the generation raised to not complain and to make do with beet sugar and ration stamps and warned to waste not, want not. As a result, we complain in a whisper and we leave our homes and our stockpile of stuff with deeply felt regret and a great deal of wistfulness. And this means that you have to have a real parting 
with stuff. When oh you, yes, when you move into to someplace new. Yes, I had to uh, go through and pick out just a few things that uh, were very important to us, and uh, we a lot of things had to go. But I realized the stuff is just stuff that when you leave a house. And you come back and no one's there. It's no longer the home. Hmm. And you just have to get rid of the stuff. And so you went through quite a process to decide where to move. And eventually you chose a place that you call Planet X in the book. Yes, I did. (laughs) Why why do you call it Planet X? It's it's far removed from anything I'd ever experienced before in another planet almost. Uh, Give me examples of how it feels uh, extraplanetary. Well, to walk down long halls, and I kept thinking when we first moved in, I just hate that color, you know. It wasn't the color I would have painted them. Uh, To go into a big dining hall and have to worry about where to sit or whether other people are going to let you sit there, that was a first for me. It was it was difficult at first. I had a hard time adjusting. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Sue Petrovsky. Her new book is called Shelved, A Memoir of Aging in America. How do you think corporate elder care addresses the social and mental health needs of people living at Planet X, as you call it? Well, most people, if I ask them where we live, why they are there, they'll say it's because of the socialization. Uh, Most of the research shows that older people need a lot of socialization. That isolation becomes a problem. Yes, it does. And uh, there are definitely a lot of programs going on and a lot of activity and so forth. But uh, on the other hand, we have little to say about what, what does happen there. Our meals are planned for us. Um, I have no idea what the budget is. I just know that they want us to pay the pay our monthly rent. Uh, it becomes a matter of uh, being treated almost as though they do to you and for you, but not with you. And that's from corporate because the staff is good. Unfortunately, they have to do what they're told because they have to earn a living. I want to say that you and your husband have the means to pay for a place like this, which is not true of all seniors. No. Uh, do do costs, costs keep rising, though? I'm sorry, what? Do costs keep rising? 5%, 5.5% a year. I figured out yesterday, I took the original rent, and then I took what we're paying now, and it's in four years, we've our rent has raised 22%. That's a lot. Mm. You say that American culture makes it hard for people to think that there is life after 65. Yes. And that by the time you are 85, you can really be marginalized, put on a shelf. That's why you call this memoir mm-hmm. shelved. Yes. Uh, what does that feel like? Help me understand what it is to be shelved. Well, are you looking forward to getting old? Um, okay, probably not. 
Well, there's there are aspects of it that I like, Sue. I must say, but uh, there's a lot of fear accompanied. It can be a very good age. I'm enjoying it a lot, but but it take you have to be creative, or you have to uh, think positively. Uh, the problem with is that what other people think of you. You know, they say, "Well, you're shelved." You know, you're no longer. Um, considered your your opinion is no longer considered important. Uh, I asked my daughter, "What would you? What would be the hard part of getting old?" And she said, "To be ignored, to not have your thoughts be listened to." And that happens. So, how do you find meaning and purpose at a place like Planet X? Again, your name for the senior living community somewhere in Metro Denver. <laughs> Well, I think everybody – I read a chapter in the book uh, called uh, The Employment of Old Age. And our job at old age is not the same as the way when it was young when we had to earn a living and uh, earn money. Our job now is to try and go deeper, not wider, to learn more about what's what's important, go uh, – Look Look at some of the things that we haven't thought about before. What's an example of that for you? Well, I think you have to be very creative. You have to um, read a lot and read something besides maybe comic books and so forth. <laughs> okay. But I don't, I don't want that to sound, you know, conceited or uh, beyond what other people are doing. Uh, so it sounds like education is an important thing for you? Very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one has to keep ed educating themselves. How's your husband doing? He was the impetus for this. I think he's done very well in this community. He loves going to meals. Um, I wouldn't say his – I think his dementia is, is – is about the same as it was when we moved in four years ago. I see. So there's not been a significant deterioration. No, no. I, I imagine you're grateful for that. Yes. And what would you change about the environment around you if you could? Let the people have more say-so in what's happening. Uh, maybe have a committee to decide what the meals are going to be like. Uh, let the people uh, – let us – let the residents see the uh, budget – how is the money budgeted? How much is going to alcohol in the evenings? How much is going to um, adornments down in the lobby? Uh, how much is going to food? Food's always a big problem with the senior living. And it must be such a big change from the power that you exercised over your own meal when you were ha yeah, you know, sure. head of your house. Uh -huh. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. That is Sue Petrovsky. Her new memoir is called Shelved. It is a memoir of aging in America. Finally today, Grammy-winning jazz singer Diane Reeves has been inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, part of a class called Jazz Masters and Beyond. Other inductees include Bill Frizzell, Ron Miles, members of Earth, Wind & Fire, and Reeves' own uncle Charles Burrell. Reeves grew up in Colorado, went to George Washington High School, still calls Denver home, here she is with an interpretation of a Fleetwood Mac song, Dreams. Now here you go again, you say you want your freedom. Well, who am I to keep you down? It's only right that you 
your loneliness like a heartbeat drives you mad in the stillness of remembering what you had and what you lost and what you had Diane Reeves with Dreams. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Ba-da-ba, yeah. oh, oh. Ba-da-ba.